With Ernst Lubitsch-like pacing, Talbot allows humor to grow in spaces between moments the jokes are hard to describe but easy to get. That's when Jeffrey M. Anderson, film critic for San Francisco Examiner, talking about The Last Black Man in San Francisco, the film that we'll be focusing on this week on Cinephile. Thanks so much for always checking us out. This is Adnan Burke. Of course, I'm alongside my producer, Joe. You can always get in touch with us, CinephilePod, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E-P-O-D. And of course, my Twitter handle, A-D-N-A-N-S-V-I-R-K. We're talking about that film, but also our Mount Rushmore is going to be, because of this film, which is such a love letter to San Francisco, Mount Rushmore films that identify with a certain place. So think about that topic of four films we're going to get. And my buddy Max Bredos, my old friend from ESPN, going to join us talking about Rolling Thunder. Uh, he, like Joe, is a Bob Dylan fan, and he actually loved the film. So I'm curious to get his take on it, and uh, he'll do some great impressions as well because it's a new audience now. Joe hasn't heard his Sean Connery impression, so we'll get that in there. But let's talk first about this film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. So this was a huge hit at Sundance. And um, I was very eager to see it because of all the buzz that was there. Here's the plot around it. Jimmy and his best friend Mont try to reclaim the house built by Jimmy's grandfather, launching them in a poignant odyssey that connects them to their past, even as it tests their friendship and sense of belonging in the place they call home. And honestly, it's a, a stunning film. It really is, as I mentioned, a love letter to San Francisco, but also one that's an indictment of San Francisco. So these two guys are just, you know, regular Joes trying to get by. Jimmy Fails is the main character, and that's actually his real name. He is, <laughs> that's his name, and that's his name in the movie. So Jimmy is trying to reclaim this house. And it, it made me think about, for anybody listening, if there's a place you've ever really loved, whether it's a house or a building or an environment, there's just say, you know what, that place just feels so comfortable to me. Home is where the heart is. There's nothing like home, et cetera. And that's where this place is times 10. It's this Victorian home which he says was built by his grandfather back in 1946. And it's a beautiful house in San Francisco, three stories high. And he always kind of checks up on it with his friend Mont just to kind of, you know, make sure the house is in good upkeep because he cares about it so much. And one day he sees an argument outside between the tenant and the previous person that was living there. And the tenant tells him, yeah, you know, there was a death in the family. It's going to be fought over who belongs to the property, et cetera. And he goes to the real estate agent to find out if he can buy the property. And he says, you know what? Unfortunately, when it comes to litigation, these things take a long time. So we're not going to know who's actually in ownership of the house, and therefore we can't transfer it over. But Joe says, great. This is great news for me and Mont. They basically break into the place. <laughs> he gets all his old furniture, and they start living in this house, this house which is his safe haven, which is his favorite place to rule, which is inspiring. And Mont, who's played by Jonathan Majors, is an artist, so he starts working on his writing, and he's working on his plays and directing, and, and that's where the story goes. And then eventually, of course, these guys are not going to be able to live in this house forever. Uh, that you know, The landlord finds out about it. They get into a little issue with the real estate agent, etc. And they have to think of some valiant way that they can hang out of this place. So the, the plot is relatively thin. What it is, though, it's a really atmospheric movie, and it's deeply poetic. It made me think of a David Gordon Green's film, George Washington, which I loved. It came out in 2000. You know, again, a film that really made you think of a place which was North Carolina at that time, and beautifully shot. And, um, you know, in this case, the director, Joe Talbot, he and Jimmy are lifelong friends. They grew up in San Francisco together, and they said, why can't we make a film about San Francisco and the way it's changed, and particularly the gentrification of the area, which, quite honestly, when you're watching this film, feels like um, another way of saying white colonization. I mean, San Francisco, and it's Haiti, they called it the Harlem of the West. You know, 13% African-American, it's now 5%. And it gets less and less common if you go to San Francisco that you see black faces. And, um, you know, my wife's from the area, so I'm in the Bay Area at least once a year. 
And I see that now. It's, it's become a place that's just too expensive, too wealthy. Uh, some would say too hipster, too elitist, too liberal, you name it. But it's not a place for anybody anymore. It's, it's primarily those who are very affluent, Tech Valley, Silicon Valley geeks who are white or Asian. And um, the city, which used to be such a great melting pot, is becoming much less so. So I think what, what Joe and Jimmy are trying to do is comment on the way San Francisco has changed and a place that you felt was very pluralistic. It's now not home to that. Now it feels like it's where strangers are. And um, it's not just an issue of race. It's an issue of economy and class structure and all of that. Um, if that sounds heavy-handed, the film is not because, as I said, it's so beautifully shot and very poetic. Uh, the use of slow motion, uh, the way the colors are saturated. I mean, there's one beautiful shot. Jimmy always goes around on skateboards, and you see him going down Lombard Avenue, and it's just it's so well done. There's another shot. There's a POV of him on a skateboard. Uh, there's like at least a handful of images that you, you'll definitely think about in your mind. If you just watch the trailer for The Last Black Man in San Francisco, one of the blurbs that I like from one critic said, you know, after five minutes, you knew this movie was going to be special. And as I mentioned, it got rave reviews there at the Sundance Film Festival. Took a bit of an effort to find it. We're now living in Hohokus, New Jersey. Incredible name here in North Jersey. So I couldn't find an indie theater around there. But the Claridge Cinema, which is about 14 miles away in Montclair is where I went, which is a beautiful little theater. And I tweeted about it and Alan Sepinwall, who is a great TV critic for Rolling Stone, and of course I'm using his book and uh, Matt Zoller's Zeitz quite a bit when it comes to the Bada Binge, Sepinwall immediately tweeted and said, oh my God, that's the theater that I grew up in. My parents would always take me there to see foreign films, indie films, etc. So shout out to the Clarence there in Montclair. It's a beautiful uh, theater. And the Montclair Film Festival always happens May 3rd to May 12th. So hopefully Cinephile will be involved next year. But I digress. When it comes to this film, like I said, I, I, I'm not surprised at all by the rapturous reception that it's receiving. It's in limited release right now. It's only made $2 million so far. But critics are really jumping on it. You know, when it comes to... Um, people who really kind of appreciate this kind of filmmaking. I mean, it has a real independent spirit to it. And in terms of the rating, I mean, 94% tomato meter, 85% audience score. The Last Black Man in San Francisco from director Joe Talbot. It really is a stunner and a really special movie. And a movie that I think you think about long after the credits roll. There are also, of course, that song, San Francisco. It's beautifully done by um, one of these musicians. He does like an a cappella version of it. And afterwards, it's tough to get that song out of your head, San Francisco. Uh, Joe, your thoughts? Have you, have you seen the film at all? Have you heard about it and what maybe your thoughts on san francisco oh i have a lot of thoughts on san francisco but we don't need to get into that right now uh i've heard <laughs> i've heard fantastic things about the movie i'm really excited to see it um it's been getting tons of good buzz and word of mouth and as of right now it stands as a movie that could be doing damage come oscar season I am with you, man, because this is one of those films that's like, you know, the little indie that could, and it's a really poignant filmmaking, but it feels invigorating, and you're right, you know, the, you're not always going to reward these big budget films, and not every movie that comes out from uh, September to December, which we know is award season, is going to get recognized. There's always one or two, right, that comes out in the summer or the spring that the voters remember, and I'm sure that if A24 gets behind this, and they do a fantastic job, uh, you know, promoting their films, I think it really could be a topical film. Here's another review. Julian Roman said, the last black man in San Francisco is a hauntingly poetic film about loss, friendship, and the starkness of inevitability. It is a story of the American dream slipping gasp. There's also a fact that, I guess in some ways, it's like Barry Jenkins' first film. He made a film before Moonlight, and it was about a black man and woman in San Francisco. So I, I haven't seen that film yet, but being such a huge fan of Barry, I'd like to see that. This is obviously a film of uh, much artistry and poignance. So definitely check out The Last Black Man in San Francisco. A couple of stories here I want to touch on, uh, which Joe sent my way before. 
before we get into uh, our guest, Max Bredos. One of them is, can Stranger Things grow up in season three? I haven't seen the show, but season three is coming soon. I remember for season one, obviously, was rave reviews. Uh, season two, I heard, wasn't as strong. My wife saw it. But season three, people are wondering, will it take that next step? You know, it's really a show about nostalgia and invoking youthful experiences, universal and specific. Uh, I know David Harbour is supposed to be fantastic. I know he won the uh, Emmy Award, Screen Actors Guild Award, gave a really strong speech about it. So that's uh, this show is coming out on Independence Day, so a couple days from now, on Netflix, hour-long sci-fi drama. Joe, are you hyped for a Stranger Things 3? Oh, yeah, I'm hyped for it. I'm excited to see... What they do, I'm excited to see the mall. They're changing the setting. They're changing the seasons. Now it's in the summer. And they're changing the monster. So apparently this monster is going to be a huge, huge, difficult guide for them to get rid of. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited. All right. So there's some changes there as far as keeping things the same. How about RoboCop? RoboCop returns with Neil Blomkamp. He's the director of District 9, which was a terrific sci-fi movie. He has said that his RoboCop sequel, RoboCop Returns, is going to have the exact same suit as the one that Peter Weller wore as Alex Murphy in the Paul Verhoeven 1987 classic. When he was asked on Twitter, is it the original suit? The response was from Bloomkamp, 1 million percent original. This is a different approach to the one taken by the makers of the 2014 RoboCop remake, which found star Joel Kinnaman wearing a much sleeker suit. So RoboCop, same suit, Joe, and I don't know if you've seen the movie. It's before your time, but it's awfully campy for its time. I wonder if Bloomkamp's going to make it sleek or he's going to have that same feel that Verhoeven had to it. Yeah, I wonder too. I have seen the original uh, uh, movie, which I love. I love the original one. Um, I also saw the remake four years ago. You know, no one should see that. But I really like this director, really like District 9. That was a really innovative film. So I'm excited to see his take on uh, Robocop. Yeah, I agree. He's definitely a very talented director. One more for you. Uh, can I see a couple more stories here for you? Paul Rudd answering the call. He's going to be in the new Ghostbuster movie from director Jason Reitman. That's right. The star of Ant-Man is going to be in this film, which um, you know he took a picture in front of the iconic firehouse from the 1984 original. Jason Reitman's dad, Ivan Reitman, the gay Canadian, he's the one that did the, the original film. So now his son, Jason, who, of course, has done Up in the Air and other films of that ilk. Thank you for smoking, a really good one. He is now directing Ghostbusters. So like father, like son. The new film also starring Carrie Coon, who is so good in Fargo, Finn Wolfhard, McKenna Grace, and according to Sigourney Weaver, some of the original stars as well. Rudd's character is the role of a teacher living in a small town. So this is different here, Joe. This is not exactly the female Ghostbusters, which we saw, and this isn't the originals, uh, maybe. Maybe not. We don't know if uh, you know Dan Aykroyd or uh, um, uh, Bill Murray's going to be showing up in this one. But Ghostbusters at least done through the sun's eye. So a Reitman is directing the latest Ghostbusters. I I'm very happy with that. Yeah, all of his movies are are good as far as I'm concerned. But the cast is what's really drawing me right now. It is rumored that Bill Murray will return. So. And according to IMDb, both Sigourney Weaver and Dan Aykroyd are a part of the cast, so I'm interested to see how they might tie the 80s version with the one that they're making now. Love Dan Acker, by the way. Check out my buddy Cabby. His podcast is fantastic. He just had a 30-minute interview with Dan Aykroyd. Great stories about that whole class of comedians. And he said those great Canadian comics of that era, when it was John Candy and, you know, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy, he said the funniest in the room, you know, Rick Moranis as well, the funniest was Martin Short. He said Martin Short was just unbelievable. Like the talent of Martin Short, God, that guy's one of those great, brilliant comic minds. You, you, can't, uh, you can't replicate what Marty Short's all about. But obviously Dan Aykroyd, a great talent in his own right, 
And lastly, Melissa McCarthy apparently going to be on hand for Disney's live action The Little Mermaid. We talked about Aladdin coming back. Well, now Little Mermaid. Disney's going to keep churning all these out and doing live action uh, movies. I got to admit to you, Joe, I, I like Little Mermaid, but all I remember is Sebastian. He was great. The Crab and Under the Sea, that incredible song. Uh, I don't really remember the character of Ursula, but Melissa McCarthy, obviously a talent, so uh, I look forward to seeing it. Mary Poppins Returns director Rob Marshall will be directing this one, so there's also going to be new songs from Alan Menken and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Can't go wrong with Lin, of course, after what he did with Hamilton, but Little Mermaid coming back. What do you think? You know, I am. I don't. I don't know what to think of this movie. Uh, the Lion King kind of flopped, right? And uh, but mm-hmm. the Jungle Book did really well. The live action version a few years ago. So I, I personally don't think this movie might be needed. Maybe I'm in that cab. Maybe I'm in the minority. But it'll be fun to see how they do it. I guess. Yeah, you're right. It will remain to be seen. Dumbo definitely did not do well in terms of budget and the kind of stars and the kind of money that Tim Burton amassed. Aladdin has grossed $820 million worldwide. That's a huge hit. And, of course, The Lion King is opening soon. John Favreau's movie, and that's expected to make some boffo dollars as well. All right, that's your uh, entertainment news. Let's get to my man, Max Bredos. A pleasure to welcome back my man, Max Bredos. Of course, if you've listened to Cinephile, the previous incarnation, this is not a new name for me. You know he's one of my good buddies. Uh, never had more fun than I did ever working at a sports cast at ESPN than I did with Max because we're like-minded and like to have a lot of fun. Uh, you know, they always say that true chemistry is when you can finish each other's sentences. I don't know if Max and I were quite at that level, but he, he always knew where I was going with an impish grin, what stupid movie reference I was going to make or what terrible song reference, whether it was uh, Sixpence None the Richer for Hunter Pence or whoever it was. Uh, that's true chemistry when a guy can anticipate where you're going. And by the way, we hope to relaunch in some capacity. So, Max, here's my thought. You're, you're going to come on Cinephile. Maybe I'll pop up on your YouTube channel, whatever you're doing, and eventually we're going to convince Sirius to give us a show. What do you think? Dude, I would love it. That's how, that's how success is found here uh, in 2019 when it comes to sports content or whatever content we're creating, whatever you want to call it. If you can rely on your big-name friends like Adnan Burke, you are good. And by the way, I can't finish your <laughs> okay. sentences because when you were talking about Canadian comics and you mentioned John Candy, I was thinking in my head, $1,000 he's going to say Catherine O'Hara next. And you said Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> of course I did. And by the way, you're going to love this. So we, you heard me talking about Ghostbusters and the latest incarnation with Jason Reitman. The other day, my buddy Scott Rogowski, who's who I host this show, Change Up on Zone, our baseball show. You've seen the yes, clips yes. on social media. And he, he said about Ned Yost, the Royals manager, he said, I ain't afraid of Ned Yost, which is, of course, a reference to Ghostbusters. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. And I immediately said the line which you told me, which is immortalized in the song, which is Bust makes me feel good. Yeah, and I still don't know how Ray Parker Jr. got away with that. I don't know how you could <laughs> say in any sort of language, whether it's edited or not, Bustin makes me feel good because <laughs> my mind goes to another place and I think it's completely inappropriate. Oh, it's incredible. It's so funny, man. This is what you've taught me. So so this is so good. Max correctly has noted the fact that I'm just so obsessed with Scorsese and I'm just so biased towards his work. He could literally just show a guy taking his garbage out and I'd say, oh my God, this should be nominated for every Academy Award. So this is an absolute rarity. This is why I wanted to get Max on so much because he saw Rolling Thunder before I did. And he, and he, and he, and he texted me and he said, oh man, it's great. And then he tweeted his review and goes, I'm sorry, I know I sound like Virk, but I'm telling you, this movie's great. Now, Max, I wasn't crazy about it. Before I 
I want to hear why you liked it so much, let me just tell you this. So I don't know rock and roll nearly as well as you do. I'm not as much of a Dylan fan nearly as much as you. I know a few hits, et cetera. I thought the documentary was fine, but I said, you know, you have to really like Dylan and like that era, Joan Baez, et cetera, to appreciate it. Now, what I found even more interesting is I read this article in the Washington Post, and Scorsese was quite cheeky about it. He, he purposely put in stuff that isn't even true. Like the one manager who talks about when he booked Dylan and the guys, apparently that guy is, is like, he's like a Hollywood executive. He is not the guy who booked them. He's not a music promoter. The Sharon Stone story about meeting Dylan, that apparently is made up because she's either 17 or 19 at the time, and, and Dylan didn't perform or she would have been. So uh, first and foremost, what did you think of Rolling Thunder? Why was it a film you liked more than I did? I don't, I don't, first of all, I don't mind being lied to when I'm watching movies. I really don't. Uh, it's fine. And I figure when I was listening to Sharon Stone stuff that it was, uh, and that they relieved you a little bit about, uh, you know, where the, the origin of the song come. And obviously it was tongue in cheek in some ways. But I think when that entry point, you figured a lot of it was the land of make-believe. First and foremost, and it's easy to, to please me in a lot of ways, it's just the appearances. I, I will say Allen Ginsberg's appearances throughout there and some of the stuff that he said was very memorable. <laughs> Yes. And there was a part where he's dancing, and I'm like, I go, man, you know, on this tour, Ginsburg had a great time doing new, doing who knows what. And I just saw that, and I was really taken in. I felt like it was, you were part of the tour. I thought it was a really nice job of kind of introducing all the, the principles on there. And as the tour went on, I, as a music fan, I was blown away when I'm on stage, and Mick Ronson comes on, and he was uh, the guitar player of David Bowie, and to see these guys going. Uh, on stage and performing. By the way, there was apparently an appearance from, I'm, I don't know if I went to and had a, a cup of coffee or something or a beer, but apparently Gordon Life was in it for a hot minute and I didn't see that. So I'm going to have to rewatch it, but I think just the, the, the storytelling and the times and the other thing that was that I really enjoyed was when they'd go back to Bob Dylan. Granted, maybe not everything was 100% true, but how sharp he is and his his reflection and memory of all of these things that happened so many years ago was really cool. So I like how it went back. I like the storytelling. I I figured if I like something from Scorsese, you wouldn't. I think that's like par for the course. <laughs> but I think if you're a music fan, you liked it. I thought <laughs> I thought you, you could turn it up a little bit. It was really enjoyable. Yeah, I, I listen. I'll stick with the last waltz. You know, you know, I love the night they drove old Dixie down, and two of the members of the band are Canadian. And uh, the Rolling Stones is what I enjoy because it was, of course, all live music there. The point, you, the best, uh, maybe not the best. I don't want to. I don't want to give you too much credit, but the the most stinging criticism you gave to Scorsese was you said to me, "You go, God, I'm tired of all these directors now that make these self indulgent movies that are two and a half hours." And by the way, your boy is the prime culprit. Hire an editor. Let's chop this sucker down. <laughs> By the way, I like the hey, I like the Scorsese, uh, the Last Waltz, the, the Rolling Stone one. I did not like that one. Was I did I just enjoyed it so little that I would have almost skipped the Bob Dylan thing. But the fact that it was on Netflix, <laughs> that I could click on it, made it a no brainer. And I was like, wow, this is good. And I'm not a huge Dylan fan, but I was like, yeah, right. I really enjoyed yeah, it. By the I'm glad you mentioned Dylan just as a person because you're not a huge fan. But like, what do you think? I, I'm with you. I thought he was actually quite reflective. And the guy's 78 years old, and he, and he seemed lucid, even if he's making stuff up. But where do you rank him? Because I find Dylan fans are just—I mean, listen, it's like Springsteen fans. Like they're so obsessive about it. If you say any sort of criticism, they go berserk on you. Where do you find on the level of yeah. like sanctimonious, self-righteous people? Where do you rank Bob Dylan fans among all music fans? They're pretty up there. But the thing with Dylan is, I think as a performer, I don't rate him that highly. Uh, I don't think he was like a memorable performer. I think as a songwriter, you have to put him way up there. Uh, the Bruce Springsteen fans are the most obtuse because they say stuff like, 
oh, no, 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 no. He's the best. I'm like, all right, hold your horses. I always like to needle them a little bit and say, the best band ever to come out of New Jersey, you know who it is? I go, Bruce Springsteen, hands out. I go, no, the Misfits from Lodi, New Jersey. They can rock a house, man. <laughs> but uh, but I'll say, I what I rank about Bob Dylan, man. There's so many musicians that I love who have got versions of Bob Dylan's songs that, it, that they reinvented that were so good. And you got to give Dylan some credit to that. I think uh, Roxy Music, who I love, have a couple Dylan covers, uh, like A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, which is amazing. Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers have a Dylan cover. And so many people do. And then you hear it, it's different from the Bob Dylan. But I think his songbook inspired so many people. So when you talk about music and where people rank, Dylan is on that, he's on that highest plateau. You, I think you got to put him there. Yeah, no question. Right, as a songwriter, his music has just such an influence. I just think the the voice is a little whiny at times for me. Um, as far as stuff agreed, you're seeing agreed. right now, yeah. As far as stuff you've seen this year, TV, movies, whatever you want. Well, what has piqued your interest? What is something you would recommend to people, either in theaters, Netflix, wherever? <laughs> All right. Um, let me see. I, I, I was watching. I, last thing I watched was Robin Hood uh, movie that came out. I guess on HBO that was that was. Not great. I fell asleep the, on it. The, one with, uh, the Jimmy Fox one was seen, supposed to be you, terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, the guy who played Elton John. Have you seen the Elton John movie? Is it any good? I haven't. Taron Edgerton plays. And I, I, again, I'm not huge into Elton John, but it's gotten very good reviews. I was not as crazy about Bohemian Rhapsody as many others, so that's why I've been hesitant. But I have heard it's very good. But I, I can't see you being a huge Elton I've John fan. That, Correct me if I'm wrong. I've heard that. No, I'm not. I don't, I don't know what the big... I don't know the compelling story of Elton John. Queen is an interesting story, I think, because... Uh, you see where they came from. Elton John, I go, I, I, where's there's enough conflict or anything. Yeah, I'll go into it, but I'll probably watch it at some time. I've been catching up on a lot of movies that you saw a year ago on American Airlines because I've been flying back and forth a lot. All the movies that wrote for the Academy Awards I've now completely seen. If Beale Street could talk. Hey, I gotta say, what was the one? Uh, is it First Man with Ryan Gosling about the, uh, the Apollo missions and all that? Yeah, Damien Chazelle. I thought it was terrific. It was very overlooked last year. It was way overlooked. That was exceptional. I thought, like, how they showed how these guys did it. You couldn't even imagine that this was real, but it was. I thought it was. I, I, I was like, why does this movie get a little bit more push? So I, I would go see that if you have access. Uh, I know everyone saw Chernobyl. It was, it was amazing. And it, I just love stuff like this where, uh, obviously, it's a big tragedy. But this subplot, that, and this is how, I mean, this is how my brain works. I go, man, how have we ever discovered to split an atom and have these nuclear facilities creating energy? So I'm like, it's, it comes in two prongs. So I thought they kind of spell it out in the last episode of that, which is really remarkable. Um, otherwise, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to pick up some of the movies here. I know you, I saw a post you had recently. You're, you're an art house movie theater in New Jersey, so your life has changed for the better. So I'm going to try and do something that myself and catch up on a few things. But you know what I, you know, we've had that argument. I say like, things are changing where movies come straight to you on your streaming services and uh, how Disney and so many other people are changing. I think that's going to become more and more of a reality. But again, going to the theater and seeing movies still is a great, is a great experience. All right. We've given up enough time here on other matters. We now need to get, cause Joe's never heard it. And the rest of the audience, Cadence 13, who is not aware of Max's breathtaking impressions. Let's start to fire through a couple here. Uh, give me a little Sean Connery, whatever topic you like, maybe Sean Connery. Uh, let, me, let me do this. Max is the voice of LAFC. So that soccer team is doing a phenomenal job right now in MLS. He is the face of that franchise in many ways, not only broadcasting, but entertainment and meeting guests. So how about Sean Connery on LAFC so far, or even the sport of soccer? What do you got? 
Well, just announced uh, LAFC have picked up a, a, a preseason friendly for 2021 against Glasgow Rangers. That's a bit of a laugh, isn't it? Now, I spent a fair, a fair amount of time in L.A. Uh, not, not, of course, in July. I'm at Wimbledon at the, uh, and getting shops, strawberries and, and, and cream and champagne at a rapid pace, watching tennis, which is really a dead-end sport, but I'm at my dead-end myself, to be perfectly honest. Hey, Adnan, <laughs> who's your favorite tennis player? Uh, Sean, I'm a huge Roger Federer fan. I, I adore him. Roger, ro- never heard of him. Roger Federer. I'm going to say, no, he's, he? he's the he greatest. He's American. <laughs> he's from Canada. No, he's, no, he's Swiss. He's the, the greatest player of all time. He's the GOAT, Sean. <laughs> I'm the GOAT. <laughs> I'm a ghost. How Sean, dare you? Sean, if, if, if Roger Federer was one of your, if Roger Federer was one of your movies, he'd be Zardoz. Zardoz, would he wear a g-string made out of uh, Corinthian leather? That's what I did. <laughs> it was right up, it was right up my backside. It was rather painful, but I wore it. I'd like to see your, I'd like to see your, your Ricky Federer do that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's Roger, but sure, you can call him Ricky. Um, how about you mentioned did Bob you, Dylan? Did you correct me. No, I, I didn't, Sean. I'm sorry. You're a legend. I apologize. I'm sorry. I was the faulty connection. I, I want to know, listen, Bob Dylan's a guy, but what about David Bowie? Like, what do you think David Bowie's thoughts would be perhaps on Bob Dylan or, or music today? Bob Dylan. He's a, he's, a, he's a great artist. I worked for him. I'm many to. He did borrow my guitar player to fill in the gaps. But David Bowie, there's no gaps that need to be filled by me. Hey, you know, David Bowie. I've gotten out of the music industry. I'm now in sports predictions. Going to Las Vegas, working at the sports book. Who do you think's going to win? The Jaguars or the Titans? To me, it's the Jaguars. <laughs> and I don't know why. <laughs> oh, that's so great stuff. Over there? Well, how, how about, how about David? It's coming, baby. I like well, Monday Night D- Football. Give me David Bowie singing about Ricky Gervais. <laughs> Silly little fat man. Gave up on his dreams. <laughs> He's a little man. And he said, fat nose. Fat, fat, fat. <laughs> Ricky Gervais. He paid me. Oh. Paid me rather handsomely to be on his show, Extra. Oh, it was so good, man. Extra is so good. By the way, last one for you. Have you seen Afterlife on Netflix? You and I both big Ricky Gervais fans. I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's a well-reviewed show on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really? love Ricky. Wasn't that good? And I watched it. I watched it. It's just a different, it, it had some funny spots, but it's a different tenor. I think you have to get used to it. But I think he's trying something different. And so, uh, was I supposed to do that in David Bowie's voice, by the way? Or No, no, you're back to Max <laughs> Bredos now, so you're fine. <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but I'll, anything he pushes out, I'll do and I'll watch. But Extras was such a pleasant surprise. Uh, the scene with David Bowie, the scene with uh, Liam Neeson is some of the best things I've seen uh, on, uh, on it. And on anything, TV, movie, streaming, uh, in the last 10, 15 years, for sure. When Liam Neeson says that, you know, Stephen, I, I love doing lists. That's why I should play the role of Oscar Schindler. I mean, that, that is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> I played Oscar Schindler. I played Zink. I played it all. I got to work on a Liam Neeson impression. But he was great. Oh. He was great. Because he played himself. Oh, it was awesome. Uh, cool tell us where we can find you. Where we can find you, Max Bredos Twitter. Go ahead, Instagram, YouTube. Give it to it's me now. Max Bredos Sports on Twitter. Max Bredos Sports on Twitter. M Bredos on Instagram. You'll see me post stuff uh, over and over of where I'm going in LA. I'm loving it out here. Concerts, soccer games, women's wrestling, 
uh, stuff that we shouldn't even reference here uh, over over this line. Uh, <laughs> I did post a nice. Uh, I did. I I repurposed a Twitter post recently. A friend of mine in Montana took a photo of his nanny and his daughter, but he really didn't take a photo of them. He wanted to take a photo of Phil Jackson who was sitting in the back. So I <laughs> in Montana. That that's right. I really. Poor, poor Phil Jackson is trying to get away from the public eye, and I just dragged him right back into it. So uh, you can see that. And uh, I also have a YouTube uh, channel up, Max Spreadoffs, trying to get some stuff on there I'm really excited about. And, I'm, and now we can tell you Adnan Burke will appear on that at some point. Get your butt to L.A., dude. What are you waiting I know, man. for? The last time we saw each other, Critics' Choice Awards, which, as Ryan Rosillo tweeted, I would have paid a lot of money to watch these two guys work the room. It was unbelievable the way we were able to, to we uh, just worked, have so many interactions. We worked the room. <laughs> we worked that room. Oh, it was epic. Uh, great stuff, my man. I appreciate how, you. We'll talk soon. How's baseball, how's baseball treating you? Are you super excited for the second half? Get out of uh, here. Listen, <laughs> come on. You're a huge <laughs> Indians fan. Your Indians have been on a great run lately, okay? That's news to me. I'll, I'll check in in about a couple months to see how they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I'm buddy. Soft, my baseball fandom. All right, pal. Love you. Uh, best of luck. Ken, it's really excited to be on the program. Look forward to hearing Cinephile uh, over the next 10 to 15 years. Let's do it. Oh, love you too, buddy. We'll be back together soon. Sounds good. So earlier, I was talking so much about The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I wanted to focus on a Mount Rushmore of films that make you think about a certain place. So this is going to be fairly straightforward. Like you think of, you know, the movie, it's just, it's so um, iconic with that film. And that, that's why I think Manhattan to me is an easy one for Woody Allen. I mean, there's still people who take pictures of it because you picture the black and white, the Brooklyn Bridge and all the rest of it. So Manhattan is definitely one for me. Uh, as much as, you know, listen, I think about the films of Spike Lee and Scorsese, and they really do identify with New York, but I do think Woody Allen, Manhattan is, is a quintessential New York movie. Another one, A Sense of Place, I'm going to go with Lawrence of Arabia. That's right, old school, I'm going David Lean, those beautiful long shots, the shots of the desert, never look so beautiful. Um, it's so funny, the, the story I always love is when Peter O'Toole says he met Omar Sharif. He said, what's your name? And he said, Omar Sharif. He said, no, it's not. He said, what do you mean? He goes, there's no way anybody is named Omar Sharif. Like, that is such a perfect name, and he was such a regal, handsome man. So he goes, I'm going to call you Fred. Your name is actually Fred. <laughs> Every time I think of Lawrence Murray, I think of the fact Peter O'Toole is calling Omar Sharif Fred, and they were long uh, good friends after that. Another one I'm going to go with is La La Land, a great film. I honestly, it makes me think about Los Angeles. Obviously, Damien Chazelle makes it about the movie industry and the great song and dance musical moments. I thought about including L.A. Confidential there as well. I'm going to go with La La Land. Um, those are the three that stand out to me. And then, of course, it gets really hard because you got to think of Boston movies. So with Boston, God, I wish I could. I, I have to pick one of these three. I love The Verdict. I think it's a great Boston film. Paul Newman playing a, 
Uh, Ambulance Chasing Lawyer, directed by Cindy Lamette, written by David Mamet. Uh, I think The Departed is a great Boston movie, of course. Won the Oscar for Scorsese, his first one as director, and won Best Picture. But I'm going to go with Mystic River. I think that's a really great Boston film. Um, just incredible performances from Sean Penn and Tim Robbins. Both those guys were really standouts. Kevin Bacon as well. Feels like Boston, that sense of um, tribalism and the fact that uh, people are very quick to get angry and the fact that there's old wounds and grudges being nursed and playing street hockey in the streets and the accents. I, I really think Mystic River is a fantastic Boston movie. Uh, Spotlight's another great Boston movie as well. I feel like Boston's got a ton of them along with New York. But those are the four that I'm going to go with. I'm going to say Mystic River. I'm going to say Manhattan. I'm going to say La La Land and Lawrence of Arabia. I know you didn't prep for this one, Joe, but do you think of a, of a movie that makes you think of a certain city or place that stands out to you? Oh, one, I can think of four of them. Uh, so the first one off the top of my head, Rocky, Philly movie, really him running through the streets. And then second, my New York one, because I feel like you have to choose one New York movie. That would be Taxi Driver for obvious reasons. And then my sleeper is Lady Bird, uh, Greta Gerwig. Nice. Yeah. And that just seemed not only like a, a love letter to her childhood, but also just to her childhood home of Sacramento. Uh, really, really good movie. And then I would be remiss as a Minnesotan if I didn't say Purple Rain. Uh, one, because I grew up there, and two, because Prince, and three, because Minneapolis. I love the fact you got Purple Rain. That's a good list, Joe, off the top of your head. That's well done out of you. Because you're. I kept thinking of that Lady Bird as well. I said, has there ever been a film set in Sacramento? And you're right. It's very specifically Sacramento. I mean, it's not like she's at a Kings game cheering on Chris Webber. But but there's enough references to Sacramento. It's shot there, et cetera. I mean, Taxi Driver is one of my all-time favorite movies. So I will completely agree with you on that. The, the, the shots of the, the cab driving late at night and Bernard Herrmann's score. and it, It's just so funny. It feels like a New York of a, of a different time now. You go to Times Square and you don't recognize that uh, source that Scorsese was uh, so clearly identifying with Paul Schrader's script and De Niro's acting as this uh, ultimate outsider and the guy with loneliness and urban alienation. But there's no question, Taxi Driver is definitely one of the all-time classics. So good picks out of you with regards to those Mount Rushmore films. The Butter Binge. And now it's time for the Bada Binge. We've talked about season one. Now we focus on season two. So Guy walks into a psychiatrist's office. It's the first episode of season two. And at this point, you start to see that, all right, The Sopranos is now a big-time show. Now everyone knows what it's about. So the, the first few uh, minutes of the show, I think, were really smart. They used Frank Sinatra's song, It Was a Very Good Year. And you see all the different characters of The Sopranos and what they're up to now. Um, that's, I think, a good way just to kind of introduce people, not only to the show who are newbies, but also just a reminder of what's gone down in the past. And you have the appearance of uh, Ida Turturro, who's John Turturro's uh, sister, uh, who is now Tony's sister. And she comes in just, like, just fired up and emotional. And the character of Janice is one that I think it's easy to dislike in some ways, kind of like Anna Gunn, the character of Skylar in Breaking Bad, because of the fact she's such a, a thorn in Tony's side. Similarly, Skylar was always such a pain to Walt, and that's why people are always getting mad at her and stuff, even though, listen, she's the conscience of the show. She's trying to prove that Walter can't do this. Similarly, Janice comes on, and she's just such a thorn in Tony's side. You go, oh my God, she's annoying and she's obnoxious. But I really think Tatura's performance is great because you can totally picture her as Tony's sister and yeah she's self-absorbed and narcissistic and manipulative but so is her brother so of course uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree so I really think that her character comes on strong in season two and um 
you know, adds a lot to the table. Uh, you then go from from a couple other episodes, which I think are fine. Season two to me is okay. One of the episodes that I really love, though, is episode four, which I want to focus on. That's Commendatore. That's where Tony, Christopher, and Polly go to Naples, Italy. And it was, it's interesting, you know, in, in reading the book from Seppenwall and Zoller's sites, they thought it was actually the first bad episode of the show, but I actually think it's one of the best ones of season two. Um, I love the fact that they're watching Godfather 3, and they're talking about, their favorite scenes from part two when Vito goes back to Sicily and they end up going back to Italy. And Polly's the happiest because he discovers his inner Italian. Uh, Chris goes up there and just shoots up immediately and just stays high the whole time. The, the, the most ridiculous part is he buys Adriana a gift at Newark Airport after returning rather than getting one there in Naples. Uh, David Chase, the series creator, he gets a cameo as well. When Polly's commendatore, buongiorno, he just completely just gives him a look that he doesn't want anything to do with him. But I like the relationship of Tony and uh, Sofia Milos. That's the daughter Annalisa of the old Don Z Vittorio who he's going there to see and uh, Tony's obviously very attracted to her but as he says I don't shit where I eat so that's why he's not getting involved with her even though she's got um, a bit of a, a, a response to him at least she's attracted to him on some level there's a hysterical sequence where you see this <laughs> this dream sequence with Tony dressed as a Roman centurion which I remember my friend John and I just collapsing in laughter. I thought it was so funny that the way they showed what he's thinking about. It's really important in terms of the show because that's where Tony first meets Furio, who ends up being one of the best characters in the show. He's a long-haired enforcer. He's got decent English, zero Jersey connections. But very quickly, Tony can figure out this guy's ruthless and be a real asset to the Soprano clan. So Federico Castelluccio, he's the guy who plays Furio, and that's what's important as far as the show is concerned. And then episode four, they end up picking up Furio, and he comes back to the crew. What I also really do, though, love about this episode is that it really focuses on the women and um, the strangest moments happen back in Jersey between Big Pussy and his wife Angie and they're being torn apart now by, by Pussy's and the fact that he's an informant and there's the scene where you know the women are talking and Carmela's being lectured about her lack of feminist virtue by Janice. And she says, marriage is a holy sacrament. Family is a sacred institution. And you're trying to fan the flames of Richie Aprile of all people? And Janice is insisting that Richie's prison experience is a, a sensitivity to the plight of women. And Carmela's like, are you kidding me? And it makes you realize what these women are locked up in when they're married to these mobsters. And just how sad Angie's situation is. The fact that, you know, Pussy completely ignores her because of the fact he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, because of the fact he's a rat and he's dealing with the guilt and the consequences. But the same same time, he's just a horrible husband. You know, he's, I guess you could say he's a good gangster, but then all of a sudden he's flipping. So he's obviously disloyal. Now he's a great dad because they, they mentioned that timelessly and the fact that he's there for his kids, but he's a horrible husband. That scene where, you know, he doesn't even, he just ignores the fact that um, she's there for him and she just throws the flowers in his face. It's a really well done scene. Um, and especially that last shot when, when Tony comes back, they, they really smartly used the song by Andrea Bocelli, Conti Partiro, which of course is a really famous song at that time. God, you couldn't go anywhere in 2000 hearing that song and it's a really beautiful operatic song and I love the way that they use it at the end when Tony comes back home um, Carmela hears his voice and all of a sudden the music swells up again it's a really really beautiful song and a really smart way to end that episode so first four episodes of season two and particularly for me commendatory was a really strong one Joe do you remember that Italy episode I loved it yeah, I, I love that episode too it's nice to see him on location and you're right Paulie is the funniest character in that episode when they're at dinner and he's complaining about the sauce because he doesn't know how to order it uh very it showed all the dynamics of all the entire cast really good really good episode 
All right, so the Bada binge continues. Uh, I, I tried to ask the folks here at Cadence 13 if I could take a week off next week and go to visit my brother in Wisconsin, but uh, the answer is no. Unbelievable. The show must go on. Rich Cook, slave driver, although my boy Joe is getting a week off. So, unfortunately, we will not have Joe next week. Joe, do we know who our guest host may be? Do you want to reveal that next week? How are we going to do with the second chair, so to speak? We can reveal it next week. It'll be a surprise right now in the hopper. Who will be here? Uh, my thanks, as always, to Joe and the entire crew here. Thank you so much for supporting Cinephile. Once again, subscribe, rate, review, spell, uh, you know, spread the word. It's on Apple, Spotify, etc. And until then, I'll see you at the movies.